Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Dr. Andrew Newberg, who studies neurotheology, that's uh, the effect of God or meditation prayer on your brain, and uh, our second guest will be Adam Zimbardo, who's a marriage and family counselor who deals with uh, alternative sexuality and gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, so we should have an interesting show tonight. Um, before we start, I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for anyone who wants to make a positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon and from all major booksellers. And if you want more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest is uh, Dr. Andrew Uber. He's the author of How God Changes Your Brain and several other books. And uh, good evening, Dr. Newberg. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me on your program. Well, thanks for coming. Um, tell us a little bit. You've done uh, brain scans of uh, people that uh, engage in prayer and meditation, speaking in tongues, various states like that. Uh, yes, uh, a lot. Of the the work that we originally started about oh about 15 years ago now was designed to look at what changes go on in the brain when people are engaged in different religious and spiritual activities like meditation and prayer. Uh, we originally studied some people doing Tibetan Buddhist meditation. We looked at uh, a Christian meditation called Centering Prayer, although I guess that's generalizable to other types of traditions as well. Uh, as you mentioned, we studied people speaking in tongues. And, uh, and more recently, we've been getting into trying to understand the long-term effects of doing these kinds of practices. So not just what happens when you're doing the practice, but if you said, okay, I'm going to start doing some kind of prayer practice or meditation practice today, and uh, I'm going to do it every day for the next six months or something like that, what, what happens to you? What happens in your brain? What happens to your uh, emotions, to your thought processes, your memory, and so forth? And, uh, and we've been able to document some very uh, important and very, uh, very significant changes, both in terms of our physiology as well as just in terms of how, how our brain works overall. Now, what sort of scans do you do? There's various things like MRI or PET scans. What sort of scans have you done? Well, we've actually used, uh, we have used MRI, um, so, and particularly something called functional MRI, and MRI stands for magnetic resonance imaging. It's a way of looking at changes in blood flow in the brain, and uh, the, the brain works in a very nice way that the more you use a particular part of the brain, the more blood flow it gets, and the less you use a part of the brain, the less it gets. So you can use this MRI technique, and we can put people into the scanner and have them do different practices while they're in the scanner to see what areas of the brain light up, as we would say, or, or have increased activity uh, during that particular practice. The, the other main type of imaging that we have used is something called SPECT imaging. And SPECT imaging is a nuclear medicine technique, and it involves 
uh, actually injecting people with a small amount of a radioactive material. Um, some of the listeners may have had a PET scan or uh, a bone scan or something like that or a stress test on the heart. All of these involve injecting a small amount of radioactive material. In this case, this material actually also follows blood flow as it gets up into the brain and uh, within a couple of minutes gets locked into the brain. So what we do typically in those cases is that if somebody's doing a kind of practice where they have to be in a certain posture or moving around or whatever, we start them off with a small uh, IV catheter, and then when they are actually doing the practice, we infuse a small amount of this material through the IV, and it circulates in the bloodstream for a couple of minutes, gets up into the brain, gets locked into the brain, so that when we then put them into the scanner a short time later, it actually tells us what was happening at the time of the injection, at the time that they were speaking in tongues, meditating, praying, whatever. And again, we're able, just like with the MRI, we can actually look at changes in blood flow during these particular practices and see what parts of the brain are turned on or turned off and and, and how much and and, uh, how they may be related to the ways in which we think about uh, ourselves and about our world. Now, do all these religious practices, do they activate the same area of the brain or do different practices affect different areas of the brain? Uh, Well, it looks like it actually is more the latter, that um, when we look at the broad array of different types of religious experiences and different practices, that depending on what the person is doing and what senses and thoughts and feelings that they have, they activate very different parts of the brain. So uh, on the other hand, if their person is doing a, a similar kind of thing, even though they may be of different traditions or you know, even you know, completely different places, um, we might actually see some similarities. So, um, for example, when we have studied practices where somebody is focusing their mind, focusing their attention, like on saying a prayer or on repeating a phrase like during meditation, then people tend to activate a part of the brain called the frontal lobe right behind the forehead, And this is a part of the brain that also activates during a lot of concentration type of tasks. So anytime somebody is doing a spiritual practice where they are concentrating and purposely trying to do something, especially over a long period of time, they tend to activate these front parts of the brain that is part of our attention network. It's part of the attention areas of the brain. Now, on the other hand, uh, and we showed this with one of our early studies, when we looked at centering prayer and compared that to the Buddhist meditation, the Buddhist meditation was a visual technique. They were visualizing a sacred object in their mind, whereas um, when we studied these nuns doing centering prayer, they were it was a verbal practice. They were repeating the prayer, focusing on the meaning and the language of the prayer, and there we see very big differences, so that the, the Buddhist meditators actually activate the visual areas of the brain, while the nuns activate the verbal areas of the brain because they're doing a kind of prayer practice. And similarly, when people have different emotional responses, uh, if they have a very positive emotion, uh, an emotion of joy, that could be very different in the brain than a feeling of awe or a feeling of love or a feeling of uh, of fear sometimes, depending on the individual experiences. So what I usually, you know, when I when I try to t- think about this, I, I, to me it just makes so much sense because of the richness and diversity of people's religious and spiritual beliefs and practices and ideas that, uh, to me, it, it makes so much sense that there really isn't one little part of the brain that lights up every time somebody has a spiritual experience. But it really, if there, if there is a, a God part of the brain, 
uh, it's really all the different parts of the brain which seem to be involved, and they just seem to be involved differently depending on that, that particular person and the particular experience that they're having. Now, how about the uh, glossolalia, the speaking in tongues? Does this activate different parts of the brain than these uh, centering prayer or the meditation practices? Uh, yes, actually, the the speaking in tongues was very interesting, uh, in part because of the, the practice. And uh, for those people who aren't familiar with how speaking in tongues works or what it is, uh, basically the individual is um, is making or producing some kind of vocalization, which kind of sounds like language, even though it really it really isn't able to be translated into any human language, at least that we know of. Uh, for the person who's doing the practice, it's a very spiritual experience. Uh, the person feels as if it's really the, the vocalizations or is really being produced by the Spirit of God moving through them uh, and is therefore a very powerful kind of religious experience for them. What was interesting was that when we actually looked at the scans of people speaking in tongues, in contrast to the practices like meditation and regular prayer, where the frontal lobes go up in activity because the person is concentrating on it, uh, we found that during speaking in tongues that the frontal lobes actually went down in activity, that, um, that actually it seemed like the areas, the parts of our brain that normally make us feel like we're in control and purposely doing something, they shut down and allow this particular thing to happen, this particular practice of speaking in tongues to happen without the usual sense of control. And to me, that's very consistent with the experience that the people have because they feel like they're not the one who is kind of purposely doing this, but this is something that is happening to them. They're, they're sort of receiving this thing, and, uh, and it's not something that they are purposely, willfully doing. Now, of course, you know, the, the big question of, is, well, what's really going on? And uh, to me, our scans don't really answer that question. Our scans really just tell us what's happening in the brain when they're speaking in tongues, it doesn't prove or disprove that it really is the spirit of God or that it's some other part of the brain that's sort of taking over for the normal parts of our language and, and our concentration. So there's, there's always this kind of ultimate question underlying all of this research, which is the nature of reality and, and what's really real and which experiences are really real, which to me is, is quite fascinating and, uh, and is kind of the larger picture question that these kinds of scans are sort of telling us a little bit about, but certainly uh, are not bringing us to any firm conclusion, at least at the moment. Well, the nature of reality is a difficult one, but I think one thing that we can <laughs> say for sure is that there are altered states of consciousness that accompany these practices. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and of course, what's also interesting, and, and, and this may be uh, a little bit more relevant in the context of your overall program, are the other kinds of states that are altered states of consciousness and, and how they are related to things like drugs, alcohol, and so forth, because there are many different practices in which different substances are utilized to help induce a spiritual state. And, um, and, and to me, that's also a very, it's another very important piece of this overall puzzle of trying to understand 
uh, how our bodies and our brains interact with our religious and spiritual experiences and practices because if we can find out that uh, a, a certain drug um, like LSD or psilocybin or something like that, if they activate certain receptors in the brain, certain neurotransmitters in the brain, and they're associated with different kinds of experiences, then that tells us that those transmitters and those chemicals in the brain are somehow related to those experiences. And uh, again, you know, there's still the reality, the interesting reality question, because I always think of different shamanic traditions where, you know, they'll take a particular substance, uh, peyote, for example, to induce a spiritual state. And we would look at that and say, oh, well, obviously this is just a chemical reaction. And, you know, in, in Western science we would look at it and say, well, it's just a chemical reaction and it's not real. But for them, it's it's a way of getting into that spiritual realm. It's a way of sort of elevating the brain's function, uh, if you will, to engage in this spiritual or divine realm. And the best analogy that I can I have, at least on a very practical level, a very mundane level, uh, I wear glasses because I don't see very well. So when I wake up in the morning, the world's very fuzzy, and I put my glasses on and I can see clearly. Uh, that it, it hasn't changed reality itself, but it's changed my ability to see that reality. And, and I think that that's what a lot of different uh, traditions and people would say, that these different substances actually help them engage in these spiritual practices. And, of course, you know, not that I would specifically condone doing any of that, but, um, but you know, it, it is certainly a, a, an important part of many different cultural traditions throughout the world. Uh, and, uh, and I think it certainly tells us a lot uh, or has the opportunity to tell us a lot about the nature of those experiences and particularly about how they relate to our physiology. Well, I would agree that, you know, dismissing it as just a chemical reaction is uh, being very simplistic because everything we do, every mental activity we have changes our brain chemistry. If we think negative thoughts, it, it helps us be depressed. It changes the chemistry of our brain. If we think positive thoughts, it changes the chemistry of, chemistry of our brain. So, our thinking itself changes the chemistry, as do the spiritual practices we've talked about, as do the drugs. Um, one thing that, that, that's right, and let me let me just add something that please. I mean that that's part of what uh, has uh, had a lot of people, a lot of um, researchers and clinicians looking towards different religious and spiritual practices as a way of helping people through drug addiction and alcohol, because because there's some you know, some ideas that when you engage in the practices like meditation or prayer that you are as you said affecting our physiology and there is some you know early evidence that it affects chemicals like dopamine and so forth that may have a very similar kind of impact on the brain that drugs like cocaine would have for example which certainly has an effect on the dopamine system uh, and is this a way of helping an individual deal with the issues related to drugs, um, deal with the issues related to their, how their, their brain chemistry has changed uh, because of the drug addiction that they've had? And, and people have turned to these different kinds of uh, practices and programs, uh, and, and often very successfully. I mean, we still have a long way to go, I think, before we really can say for sure how well all of these different uh, approaches work. But, um, but there's been a growing amount of research that is supporting their use uh, in helping people with these kinds of issues. Absolutely. We had a guest, uh, Katie Witkowitz from uh, University of Washington uh, um, who, uh, a couple months ago, and she was telling us about they're doing a lot of intensive research on mindfulness and meditation uh, as a part of addiction treatment there. And it's 
seems to be having very successful results, and uh, they're, they're publishing quite a bit of work on that. And we hope to do a show that really talks a great deal about mindfulness and meditation sometime soon in the future. Sure, absolutely. I think that that makes so much sense. And and of course, though, I, I think that you know one of the things that still is important, though, uh, even in the context of these different practices, is to um, to also have it be incorporated as part of a kind of psychotherapeutic-ish approach. Because um, if people are just doing a meditation without doing other kinds of cognitive processing and behavioral processing, then I, I think that they're not going to see the full effects that they really need. I mean, meditation is, is terrific, and it can really help with a lot of things. Um, but there, there, I think that there's probably going to be some a need for some additional elements to that, which really helps people to address the issues and the problems that they face as people. I think absolutely an integrated approach is uh, very important. Yeah. To, you know, we use the parts that we already know that work well, and then we integrate these, these new things that we're studying now, the mindfulness and the meditation, into the things right. that we already know that work. So. Yes, Absolutely. Now, does a person have to believe in God or have a certain theology to meditate and be successful with it? Well, the, the short answer is no. Um, you know, there, anybody can meditate. Anybody can do these kinds of practices. And there are certainly many attempts at, at uh, producing a secular versions of these practices. Mindfulness, as you mentioned a minute ago, uh, you know, is ultimately derived from a variety of uh, Buddhist techniques. And, uh, and, of course, people are not Buddhist who do it. Uh, many people go to yoga classes, and yoga grows out of the Hindu tradition. Um, but it's, it's certainly not done with any kind of religious or spiritual overtones in many of the the, the yoga classes around the country. Um, so, so certainly a person can take advantage of the effects and, uh, and can reap the benefits of these practices and these programs, um, irrespective of whatever their religious or spiritual tradition may be. Uh, that being said, uh, two, two other points I think that are important are, one, to make sure that whatever kind of practice a person may begin to pursue is consistent with their beliefs. So, um, you know, I've occasionally heard of people, uh, whether it's been some of the programs that I've been involved with, where maybe they're a particularly religious person, and when they start hearing about some of the things that are being said in a mindfulness class or in a yoga class, it, it, does, it isn't consistent with their belief system, and it's kind of disturbing to them. So one of the things that you want to make sure is that whatever, whatever teacher that you go to or class or program that you participate in, that you understand what their approach is, what their ideology is, and make hmm. sure that it isn't interfering or, or discordant with your own particular beliefs or your own particular perspective on things. Um, and, but, but the other point of all of this, too, I think, is that what I think the research would also suggest that um, that doing these practices is helpful, but the more you can get into it, the more you believe in the practice, the more it becomes a part of who you are, the more effective they tend to be. So, for example, if you were going to do a, a, a kind of prayer practice and you're kind of only mildly religious and you don't really care a whole lot about the prayer, well, it might help you, but it's probably not going to be all that beneficial. Whereas if you are a particularly religious individual and you're going to engage in, let's say, centering prayer, for example, um, then it could be extremely meaningful and an extremely powerful experience and hence actually have a very, very strong kind of effect on you. So, um, so again, part of what, you're, uh, what a person would ultimately want to look for is something that uh, a, a particular practice that is 
as consistent as possible with their own beliefs. And the more that they can kind of wrap their mind around it, the more they can fully engage in the particular practice, then the, the, the greater the effect that they may actually have. So, so being a religious or spiritual person, if you have a particular practice has a, that has a great deal of meaning for you, um, then, then that could potentially be a very, very beneficial one. Uh, and, of course, there's sort of the, the larger overarching issue of, you know, whatever practice that you do, is it a practice that um, is focused towards, uh, ultimately, more positive ways of looking at the world, more positive ways of looking at other people? Uh, you know, I mean, you could always say, well, what if somebody's very uh, religiously conservative and they start doing a practice which is very, uh, kind of angry and negative towards anybody who disagrees with them, well, that's going to create a very angry, negative person who really hates a lot of, you know, anybody who doesn't believe the same way they do. So so we always have to be conscious of, of what the practice is about, what its goals are, and how well it fits into the person's own belief system uh, that will have a lot to do with how how effective it is and how it how well it ultimately leads a person down a positive uh, and, and growth-oriented path. Okay, very good. I see we have a caller here. Um, this might be someone with a question, or it might be Adam being early. I'm going to see who this is. <laughs> Hello, caller. Are you there? Hello, caller? Um, well, they don't seem to be talking right now. I'm going to ask okay, you good. a couple more questions. Um uh, has anyone compared the effects of uh, drugs on the brain with the effects of meditation on the brain? Have they laid side by side the brain scans and said, well, this drug acts like speaking in tongues or anything like that? Uh, you know, the, the closest that people have done, there was actually a very interesting study that came out of um, uh, out of Johns Hopkins, actually, and uh, and they were looking at the effects of the drug psilocybin, a uh, hallucinogenic drug, on different kinds of experiences and um and many people it wasn't quite a direct head-to-head comparison the way that you're discussing but um but many uh, of the individuals who took part in that particular uh experiment uh had very very strong experiences had what many described as either uh, a spiritual experience or a transformative experience uh as one of the most powerful experiences that they had ever had and therefore had a lot of um subjective qualities that were very similar to the kinds of spiritual states that people describe when they actually have, you know, uh, some kind of spiritual experience. Um, now, uh, you know, one one other interesting study that was done a number of years ago actually looked at people's descriptions of three different kinds of states of consciousness. They looked at people who were schizophrenic, people who had religious or mystical experiences, and people who had drug-induced experiences. This paper was about is about 20 years old. Um, and these are people who had already written about this maybe in a book or in some kind of publication. So there was, there was a lot of issues with the study. But, but one of the things that was, was an interesting finding, I thought, was that people who had drug experiences most often described them with a lot of sensory information. So it was about the colors and the visions and the, uh, and the music and the sounds and so forth that they experienced, that that was kind of the focus of their particular experience. Uh, people who had had schizophrenic experiences and, and hallucinations and things like that, um, interestingly, frequently described those experiences in negative terms uh, as something being wrong, as, as something that was uh, detrimental to them. 
And people who had had spiritual or mystical experiences frequently described them um, as pertaining to things that are very ultimate, um, you know, ultimate ideas about the world, about the nature of reality, um, and frequently described them very positively. So, um, so you know, we, there's, there's little bits and pieces of evidence that looks at the relationship between these different kinds of experiences. And my guess is that there's certainly going to be some degree of overlap between them, um, but but whether or not one can say, well, this drug caused this kind of experience or this way of stimulating the brain caused this kind of experience, it's probably going to be a little difficult just because of the richness and diversity uh, of the kinds of experiences that, that that people can have. And how, I mean, obviously, you know, when people take a drug, they all have different kinds of experiences. So, uh, uh, and that to me is also one of the most interesting questions of all, I think, which is when if people say, well, I had... Uh, you know, an experience of great energy or a rush of love or compassion or power, uh, are they really fundamentally the same experience that they're now describing differently, or are they all having different experiences? And um, and, and I think that we, we do need to do more research to try to get at what exactly is the nature of those experiences and how they affect us so strongly. Okay, a lot of uh, people researching uh, drug use and the effects on brains talk about the nucleus accumbens and the pleasure centers. And did you do any research about uh, religious experience affecting pleasure centers? Uh, well, when we looked at our brain imaging studies, um, it, it is uh, to some degree some of those centers, the uh, areas in the um, uh, in the reward system, in the pleasure system of the brain, and you mentioned the nucleus accumbens, and that's part of uh, what, what we refer to as the basal ganglia, and, and there's a few other areas that are involved in there uh, that are very important in our emotions and our emotional responses. Uh, and yes, uh, a lot of the practices that we have observed, especially when they result in a very compelling emotional experience for an individual, uh, will actually um, will will activate those areas of the brain. And, and there's other study, other people have been doing imaging studies as well. Um, so, so I think that there certainly is some overlap in terms of the physiology of different ways of affecting this reward system in our in our brain, and um, and certainly drugs can help to do that. But um, but they're perhaps the more natural way, if you will. Uh, are to pursue these different kinds of practices like meditation or prayer when people have very, very strong spiritual states and they activate some of these same basic areas. And uh, you mentioned that particular area of the brain, the nucleus accumbens. There's, there's been one brain imaging study that actually looked at neurotransmitters and how they're released during meditation practices and found a release of dopamine in the brain. Uh, and we know that dopamine affects the areas like the nucleus accumbens and is a part of it's part of this reward system. It's uh, the, the the neurotransmitter that's affected by cocaine and the euphoric feelings of cocaine. So um, so yeah, I, I think that we're going to find a fair amount of overlap uh, between how these different chemicals in the brain are affected, whether it's by drugs or by meditation or by some type of spiritual experience. Now, you mentioned that uh, spiritual experiences can have long-term effects on the brain if they're continued over a period of time. Can you tell me more about this? Uh, yeah, well, when we when we first looked at our uh, original group of people who we did our uh, brain scan studies with, uh, what we usually do in order to see whether or not meditation affects the brain, we also get a baseline scan. We just look at how their brain looks when they're at rest. But this is the kind of scan that you would get on anybody who is getting a, a clinical scan. So we were able to actually start to look at 
what does a, a spiritual person or a person who's been doing these kinds of practices for many, many years, what does their brain look like just at rest, just when they're sitting there doing nothing in particular, and is it the same or different compared to people who are not spiritual who, or who, um, who have not been doing these kinds of practices? And, uh, and when we did some of our initial analysis, we found that there were actually some fairly significant differences, uh, that people who had been doing these kinds of spiritual practices for many years, meaning like 15 or more years, uh, they tended to have more activity in the frontal lobes, which kind of makes sense. It's almost like you know they exercised the muscle, if you will, and uh, that their frontal lobes became more active. In fact, there's some other another line of studies that actually show that the brain is thicker in the frontal lobes of people who have been doing these meditation practices for a long time. So it is uh, the analogy is almost perfect that it's like you know weightlifting. The more you use a muscle, the stronger and the thicker it gets, just like the brain. Uh, another very interesting area that we were very um, that we were focusing our attention on uh, is a very central structure called the thalamus, and the thalamus is deep inside the brain. It's very involved in our consciousness. It's very involved in uh, processing sensory information and, um, and and our ability to kind of perceive the world and look at the world in certain ways. And um, when we looked at uh, people who had been um, very long-term meditators, what we found was that their thalamus was much more asymmetric, meaning that one side of the thalamus was much more active than the other. Uh, and this was, to me, a very interesting finding because it suggests that the ways in which they look at reality itself, which the thalamus is very important in, is somehow different in these people than, um, than kind of the normal average person. So in our more recent studies, we actually looked at the longitudinal effects. If somebody starts a practice today, what kind of an effect does that have over time? Uh, and what we found was was that, that when people who had never really meditated before started to do the practice over a long period of time, um, they actually altered the symmetry of the thalamus in that time period. So it really looks like it's something that you can change over time and can have an effect on how the brain works by doing this, you know, doing a particular practice, a meditation practice or a prayer practice over uh, many months, years, and. Uh, it clearly has an impact on how the brain works. It changes the way the brain functions uh, and, uh, and obviously is going to ultimately have an effect on how the brain works for that individual person in terms of their perceptions of their self and their perceptions of reality. I think this is a really fascinating topic, uh, Andrew. I think this might be Adam calling in. I'm going to check and see if it's him. Okay. Hello, Adam. Is that you? Hey, Ken. It is me. Oh, it's nice to have you here. Andrew, let's finish up really quickly. Um, one more thing I want to ask you. You talked about, um, you talked about in your book, uh, what does God look like in different people's drawing pictures sure. of God. And uh, tell me just a little bit about that, and then we're going to wrap up and move to the next segment. Sure. Uh, well, you know, one of the one of the questions that we had, I mean, you know, addressing the issue of how does God change your brain, uh, is is what do we think about when we think of God? And uh, and of course, there's a lot of ways of getting at that question very specifically. One of them is to say, well, what do you visualize when you think about God? If I say, let's have a conversation about God, what image are you holding in your mind uh, when you think about God? And so we actually asked hundreds of people to take out a pen and paper and to draw what they thought God looked like. And, uh, the, you know, briefly, the, the results are quite interesting that, um, that really only about 20% of people draw 
a very humanized version of God, you know, the old the, the, the old man with the beard and the clouds kind of thing, the Michelangelo on the Sistine Chapel kind of picture. Uh, about 60% of people will draw some kind of abstract image, and sometimes it's uh, a nature scene, sometimes it's different swirls and patterns, uh, but uh, most people have a much more abstract idea about what God is. Um, and then actually one of the interesting things is that about 15 to 20% of people actually leave the picture blank, and when we asked people, well, why did you leave it blank, we got two different answers. One was the very religious who said, well, God is just too unknowable and I just can't draw God. Uh, or they might be an atheist and they said, well, there is no God, so there's nothing for me to draw. But uh, again, it's, it's, it's a way of getting a, a window into how people think and how people understand their own sense of spirituality. And, uh, and, and if I can segue into what I think your next seg uh, segment's about, you know, one of the interesting issues is, is how people think about God from a gender perspective. And, you know, we, we tend to talk about God as a he, but there's many cultures that have had uh, certainly more of a, of a mothering female kind of sense of God. So, you know, these are the kinds of interesting questions. Simply by asking people what they think about, uh, it tells us a lot about who we are as people, how we think about our religious and spiritual beliefs, and may shed some light into how religious and spiritual practices and, and ideas may ultimately be uh, brought into something that is very useful for people and how to ultimately avoid some of the more negative aspects of religion uh, that, that uh, sometimes causes a lot of harm and damage in the world. So uh, that's what mo most of my research is about, is how do we sort of change ourselves, uh, all of ourselves, into people that can be a little bit more compassionate and understanding and open about different people's perspectives on the world, different people's perspectives on God, because, um, you know, obviously uh, if we're going to keep living all together, it's, it's helpful for us to know what each, people, what each person is thinking and, uh, and maybe just make sure that we're a little bit more open and understanding and compassionate about it. Thank you so much, Andrew, for being our guest on our show tonight. I want to tell everyone... Go to Amazon.com, look for How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg, MD. It's a fascinating book. I'm going to do a little plug for our website and our book now. It's handsnetwork.org, a support group for people who want to change their drinking for the better. The book is How to Change Your Drinking, a Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. Our next guest for tonight is Adam Zimbardo, who is a marriage and family counselor in San Francisco who uses harm reduction practices and who also works with alternative sexualities, and Adam, welcome to the show tonight. Thank you so much, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been uh, tremendously impressed with the folks you've had on your show so far, um, so great to be in good company. We've had great people on the show. Um, it just taught me to be brave enough to ask and, you know, be per persistent and try to find the uh, email address or contact info, and so many people have agreed to come on. That it's just been wonderful. We've had a wonderful lineup of guests. Uh huh. Well, you know, certainly for me, uh, Stanton Peel was one of the people, the first people I read when I was starting to study harm reduction. Uh, and the reason I started to study harm reduction was just on a fluke when I was in grad school. I uh, had a schedule conflict and had to switch classes in my uh, substance abuse class and happened to walk into Pat Denning's class. Uh, I know you've had Pat Denning on the uh, program, oh, yeah. so uh, it was great to hear her. Uh, also on your program, so fabulous. Thank you for having me on, and thanks for having so many great folks on. So tell me a little bit about what you do in your practice as a marriage and family counselor, therapist, and uh, what kinds of people you see, and how you help them resolve their problems. Well, the, because of the work that I do, I sort of have two different 
hats that I wear. One of them is largely around sexuality, and the other one is around substances, uh, and that's where the harm reduction part comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been working uh, with alternative sexualities, with uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans people, with folks from various kink and BDSM communities. I also do a lot of sex therapy um, for folks who are having specific sexual concerns. Um, since I started doing this, and have done sex education in a variety of different contexts. Um, and we can maybe talk a little bit about uh, harm reduction as applied to sex education, too, if you'd like. We have some time for that. Um, and the other thing that I do, uh, you know, aside from that, is I do a lot of work with folks who have some kind of substance abuse issues. Um, and my background is cognitive behavioral, so all of my work comes in that context. And I've had some great folks on talking about what cognitive behavioral work is about and how that works and how that is an alternative way of seeing uh, substance use that's not based on, you know, you have a disease and therefore the substance is going to be out of control for you, but rather that using substances is a learned behavior and you can learn different ways to relate to substances. That's correct. Um, so um, I'm going to pursue the marriage family counselor thing a little bit first because, you know, okay. um, well, you, you take a different difference in a traditional approach. I mean, if we go back into the, I'm interested in this because if we go back into the 1950s, and so we look huh? at the DSM, the DSM from those days, the DSM one, DSM two. We have homosexuality right. is a mental illness that needs to be uh, cured, and actually in those days also heavy drinking was quite accepted much more than it is today. Um, only very extreme people would be called alcoholics, and it seems like we almost done some flip-flopping here, and um, so it's, it's, we've had a big change in our perspective about how we judge people and how we don't judge people, and well, of course, a lot of people still do judge people, but I think it's important, uh, whatever we're doing, to take a non-judgmental approach. I think that's absolutely right. You know, around sexuality, one of the things that fascinates me is everyone has judgments around sexuality. Um, Mm -hmm. Even those of us who have a pretty open mind around sexuality, we may have different notions than our current cultural notions about sexuality, but we still have judgments. You know, we still have things that we think, well, you know, that guy looks like he's doing some pretty healthy stuff, but that guy over there, hmm, that's not so good. Um, So as a culture, what is and is not mainstream vision of appropriate and healthy sexuality shifts over time. Um, the basic concept that there is healthy and unhealthy sexuality, I think you'll find in pretty much every culture you can imagine. There's some sense of this is the right way to have sex, and this is the right person to have sex with, and this is the right situation in which to have sex, and this is the time that you have sex, uh, and a sense of, and that over there, that's not the right way. So while those ideas evolve in terms of what's good and what's bad, there's always a sense of something's good and something's bad. As you say, there's been a huge evolution in DSM uh, around homosexual behavior over the last 20, 30, 40 years. More recently, there's been uh, movement around some other sexualities, acknowledging that not everybody is not everybody is in a monogamous relationship with an opposite sex partner. That's a long-term romantic relationship. The people do all kinds of different stuff around sex, and that that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a problem around sex. You know where that where that comes up right now culturally is we have this huge debate about sex addiction and whether some people are addicted Mm -hmm. to sex and are using sex like a drug. Uh, I think it's 
telling that there's this concept that because, of course, if they're using it like a drug, it must be bad and therefore addictive because we have this anxiety about drugs and that they're all bad and addictive. Well, there might be some people that are uncomfortable with uh, their sexual behaviors or thoughts and want to change it, you know, if if it's the desire, if if it's dysphoric, if you know the, if the discomfort comes from within the individual, I mean, it seems reasonable to go to a therapist to say, "I don't like these thoughts. I'd like to get rid of them." But then there's another part that says, "Well, society should judge what's normal, and people should conform." Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say there's also there's a parallel here, especially if we're going to talk about sex addiction here, a lot of folks are doing stuff with their sexuality that is destructive, that is not healthy, that is not doing them any good. Uh, There's a great parallel there with substance use, right? Just Mm -hmm. as some folks are using drugs and alcohol in ways that are destructive, and they can say and acknowledge very clearly, I'm not happy with the way this is going. I'm Mm -hmm. making decisions. I'm looking at those decisions, and they're bad decisions. I think you see that both around substance use and around sexuality. And I would say that the traditional disease model around substance abuse is, well, that person is an addict or an alcoholic and they need to get sober. And the model around sexuality is, well, if you have a sexual addiction, then, you know, obviously you're doing all this stuff because you have an addiction as opposed to it's a behavior. You're making some decisions and you're regretting those decisions later. One thing that bothers me uh, that I see all too often these days, is uh, celebrities and politicians, they get caught doing something that's not approved of by society, and immediately it's, I have an addiction, I can't help it, uh, don't blame me for my behavior. Uh, we saw that with uh, with uh, Congressman Weiner. Uh, also, I got the same thing with Tiger Woods. Um, so, what what are your reactions to that? Well, I think that's because of the history that we have in our culture around uh, addiction being a thing that's outside the circle of responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. I go around hitting people, people say, well, you've got to stop doing that. You can't, you can't just go around hitting people. Um, you know, if I say, well, I only hit that guy because I have an addiction problem. I'm an alcoholic. I can't control myself. That's a way to get out of responsibility for your behavior, um, that's, you know, accepted not just socially but also legally. You know, people get sent to rehab by courts when they get caught doing bad stuff. Um, so that having that cultural model of addiction means it wasn't your fault, I think very much uh, contributes to some of the celebrity nonsense we've been seeing around uh, I have a sex addiction and that's why I did this as opposed to, wow, I made some decisions and I was really happy with them until I got caught. Now I'm really unhappy with them. Uh, there's there's a certain uh, abdication of responsibility there that goes very well with the narrative of addiction. Well, I've been always quite a fan of uh, Thomas Zaz and Jeffrey Shaler, and I do feel that people need to be responsible for their actions, even you know if they're intoxicated. You know, you should think before you drink, if the, so you don't have to drive your car when you're completely loaded out of your mind. Well, I'm in. Uh, I'm right with you. And people should be taking responsibility not only for their actions when they're intoxicated, but for their relationship with intoxicants. Uh, It's very easy to blame the substance for your substance abuse problem, as opposed to saying, 
I'm choosing to use this substance in a way that's highly destructive to me, to the people that I care about, to my community, to the world, but I'm still choosing to use it. One of the things that comes up very often when I'm working with folks who have uh, substance abuse issues is they come in with a rehearsed narrative. They come in having kind of worked up a story, which is, well, I'm out of control. I can't do anything about this. Mm -hmm. It's just going to happen. And the first thing that we have to do if we're going to get anywhere is to acknowledge you're choosing to do this. It's not that it's happening to you. Mm -hmm. Remember uh, the Marion Barry scandal in Washington, D.C., where you know, he said, well, you know, these guys set me up. Now, Marion, you took the crack pipe, you stuck your lips on one mm -hmm. end and the lighter on the other, and then you smoked the crack. <laughs> you know, <laughs> clearly you made a choice. Mm -hmm. you know, it is not as if the, the scotch poured itself into the glass and poured itself down your throat. You're making choices. As soon as you can get to the point of saying, wow, I'm making this choice, and it's a really bad choice, and I'd like to make a different choice, that opens up all kinds of options around what you can do. As soon as you acknowledge that that is behavior that is in your control and under your control, you get to change that behavior. You get to decide whether that's something you still want to do. One of the things that uh, your last guest was talking about is the positive experience that people have uh, with various substances. And that's something that really gets lost in a lot of traditional substance use work. Mm -hmm. We don't like to talk about, obviously, this substance is doing something that's working for you, even if you're using it in destructive ways, even if you're acknowledging that part of it's not working for you. Also, part of it's working for you. No one ever got addicted to a substance that they didn't enjoy. Absolutely. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. By the end, you may have stopped enjoying it by the time that you're thinking about quitting, by the time that you're coming to treatment. By all means, you may have a much less positive relationship with that substance. But you are not going to get to the point where you're going into treatment if it's a substance you don't like. If you smoke pot and it makes you paranoid and confused and you hate it, you're not going to smoke pot again. You're never <laughs> going to develop an addiction for that. So kind of part of the project of breaking down the narrative uh, of I have no control over this, it just happens, is talking about what are you getting out of this? Absolutely. Uh, Pat Denning talks about that a lot, and, you know, she says, you know, you have to give people alternative coping mechanisms, and you have to, you know, give them something to replace the positive that they're getting from the substance. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the, my caution around that is one of the things that, you know, folks on our team, the harm reduction team, tend to replace the idea of addiction with the idea of you must have some underlying problem, and that's why mm -hmm. you started using substances. Mm -hmm. And while I think a lot of people do who have problems with depression or anxiety and find that there is a drug that makes them feel better, will tend to have a very positive experience with that drug and do more of it. But also there's a lot of folks who, you know, really don't have an underlying condition. You know, mm -hmm. we've got to be careful because that's our version of disease model, right, is not that mm -hmm. I have addiction, but that I have depression. And that's, mm -hmm. I've always had depression and I use this to cope with my depression. A lot of folks who don't really have an underlying problem start taking a drug, have a fantastic time on it, uh, and then continue to take it and start using it in destructive ways. Um, I think that's coming up right now a lot around, uh, you know, the, the biggest drug epidemic uh, in the United States right now, the fastest growing addiction is painkillers. Mm -hmm. um, 
a lot of folks who do painkillers don't start from like, yeah, I'm going to get high on painkillers, yay. They start from, I injured my back mm -hmm. um, and develop a problem along the way. But it's not because they had uh, some original deficit, you know, some depression problem or trauma problem or anxiety problem. But that the drug, once they took it, gave them a fantastic effect. So, you know, just to say that there's sort of two doors into substance abuse problems, and one is a deficit door, and the other is this is a really good door. Absolutely. Um, I've looked up uh, the numbers on alcohol. I can't quote them off the top of my head. But there's a large number of people uh, that uh, have alcohol dependence that do not have any comorbid psychiatric diagnosis. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and there's a and, and of course conversely, there's all kinds of folks who are having some kind of problem and their substance, whatever it is, is gives them their first experience of feeling okay in a really long time. But um even for the people with no psychiatric diagnosis, I think um the same is true though, that that we need to give them something positive to replace what the alcohol or the drug is doing for them, you know, because one of the most common ways that people get themselves in trouble and fail to do, folks who are trying to do moderation stuff and not doing it very well, tend to not replace the substance with something else. You know, I'm going to live exactly the same life that I lived before, only now I'm going to be having a glass of club soda in my hand instead of a glass of whiskey, right? Well, that's kind of a setup. <laughs> You're going to have a very difficult time. Not that it couldn't be done, but that that's a much more difficult project than, you know, one of the things about 12-step uh, programs is, wow, suddenly your life changes, you know? Whether it's a result of 12 steps or not, I think, is a part that's debatable, but unquestionably, suddenly you have this enormous support group of mm -hmm. folks who aren't getting high and aren't getting drunk anymore. You know, that's an incredibly powerful intervention right there. Well, um, yeah, you definitely have a place to go. It's not the bar. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I tried that up. I didn't like the steps, so it wasn't very positive for me. But it, I do know mm -hmm. that it was definitely something that was not going to the liquor store and buying a bottle and going home and drinking it. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's the, obviously, I'm not going to belabor this point because I think almost everybody who's come on your show so far has said this part, which is, um, and AA doesn't work for the majority of people. Um, for folks for whom it does work, it works remarkably well, you know, which is why I consider that a perfectly reasonable part of the spectrum of treatment. You know, but for many, many people, it doesn't really work all that well, and it ends up being not a positive experience, but a very negative experience. I know you've talked about your experience of going to AA and drinking more as a result. That's true, but, you know, I also have colleagues uh, in needle exchange who go to meetings all the time, and it works for them. I totally respect their choice. If this is working for you, if this is what you've chosen, good for you. I support you. It's yeah. not going to work for me. 100%. You know, it's one of the things that... Uh, one of my pet peeves about some parts of the harm reduction community is it stops being pro-harm reduction and ends up just being sort of anti-12-step. Well, I used to be that way a lot, but I've, uh, I've recovered from my anti 12 stepping in that. <laughs> excellent, excellent. 
Yeah, as as a phase to go through, I think that's a really good phase, and uh, it's unfortunate when folks get stuck there. Um, because everyone knows somebody who's in recovery, right? You know, when we you know when we get to that place of like it's us versus them, it's twelve step versus harm reduction. You know, twelve step programs. Everybody knows somebody who's had a great experience in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we get to the point of saying, well, you know, twelve step just doesn't work and it's bad, it's all destructive. That's a very different thing from saying, well, that doesn't work for me and it doesn't work for you know whatever eighty percent of the folks who go in don't stay in and it doesn't really be helpful for them. So let's see what we can do. 80%. Yeah, I'm working these days on trying to be more cooperative with people in the mainstream addiction treatment in the 12-step, you know, and I think they're opening up a lot more than they were 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you couldn't walk in and say, I'm in harm reduction. It would be, get out of here. But today, <laughs> people are much more ready uh, to listen, especially, I think, in big urban centers like New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles. You know, I think that people are much more willing to uh, accept that there are more. There's more than one way to skin the cat, or skin the cantaloupe, as we used to say. Well, absolutely. You know, I think the the reality is there are hardliners on both sides, right? There are mm-hmm. hardliners in harm reduction who think twelve steppers, you know, really are just having some kind of crazy religious experience, and you know, there's nothing really to it. And there are certainly hardliners in 12-step programs who really feel like the rest of us are just, well, you know, you haven't hit bottom yet or you were never really an alcoholic. You know, one of the things that it's important to remember in that whole debate is a lot of folks who are in the harm reduction world are dropouts from the 12-step world. And a lot of folks in the 12-step world tried to do a bunch of harm reduction before they ended up in recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, so on some level, some of our key players are, are dropouts from the other side for whom the other side didn't work. Um, so we tend to we tend to bring some baggage into the debate. So I'm going to go back a little bit to what we were talking about before, um, because in my, my experience, we were talking about, you know, uh, using drugs or alcohol coping, and I was definitely, I was, I would say I was very socially inept. I was, uh, sexually deprived, uh, and, you know, I was not relating well to other people in the world, and uh, I think that's why I was drinking a lot, and what I really needed, the thing that really helped me was I started learning to, you know, make some changes, you know, to dress differently, you know, to to always try and smell nice, you know, and just, you know, be more social to people, and... Uh, you know, call them by their first name, you know, make eye contact, all these things I didn't know how to do. I wasn't raised, uh, the way I was raised, I really didn't ever learn how to uh, socialize with people. I'm a farm boy, and uh, my parents were the extreme fundamentalist religious people, and, you know, we shunned everybody around us as, you know, not good now. Mm-hmm. So, then I was an atheist by the time I was 13, so I was just kind of out of it. But, you know, that's what I needed to do, was to learn more to relate to society and become more of a social animal and get some social skills training. But, you know, when I went social, to, social isolation mm-hmm. is certainly one of the factors. You know, that's not that's no secret. That's research research supported is folks who are socially isolated and folks especially who have uh, social anxiety are at higher risk for substance use, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, Wow, if you, if the only, this is especially 
poignant when you get somebody who started using really early and maybe doesn't have a whole lot of history of relating to people without being drunk or high. Um, you get folks who have start, who started using in high school or junior high, and really, you know, now they've spent their entire adult life some level of messed up when they're around other people. That can be a very challenging place to be when you decide to remove that particular piece of the equation and say, how now do I interact with people without being somehow altered? That's an extremely difficult place for a lot of folks to be. To bring it back to sex, that's certainly, uh, for a lot of folks, a lot of folks have never had sex sober, you know, who are coming in in their 20s, 30s, and even 40s, have never had the experience of sober sex. Mm -hmm. um, extremely common uh, in gay men, in the gay men's community in larger cities uh, around crystal meth. Crystal meth, obviously, is a huge drug uh, around sex, and for a number of guys that I've worked with in San Francisco, it had been years since they had had sex without crystal meth, and that's quite an adjustment problem. Yes, we uh, had uh, Terry Morris on here earlier from the Speed Project, who was talking about oh, yeah. issues. Mm -hmm. Great folks, the Speed Project. Um, yeah, there's a there's a whole other set of cultural, cultural, social, and sexual issues around crystal meth and gay men that uh, I think are worth digging into, and we probably don't have time to do much of that. But certainly, suffice to say, speed does a particular thing around both the pursuit of sex, the connection with other people, and the quality of sex itself that is not replicable without crystal meth. Um, the question then is, once you've taken the crystal meth out of the equation, how do you rebuild your sex life into something that's healthy, that's positive, that's enjoyable, that you don't need to be high for? Now, tell me some more. Um, so, you do uh, marriage and family counseling also with uh, BDFM community? How does that work? Uh, well, you know, it works remarkably like marriage and family therapy with other communities. <laughs> One of the things, uh, you know, there are folks in the world who feel like it is very difficult to get services. Um, I, keep, I keep coming up with parallels, and here's another parallel to it's difficult if you're somebody who says, I use substances and I want to work on something in therapy other than my substance use. A lot of therapists will say, go get you to AA and then come back when you've been sober for a year and we'll work on whatever else it is in therapy. Mm -hmm. That's an underserved population. Um, similarly, if you're doing some alternative sexual behavior that your therapist disapproves of, it can be very difficult to find a therapist who is able to say, oh, okay, sure, that's what you do for your sex life and what you actually need help with. Um, very often when kink folks go into couples therapy, the thing that comes up is the therapist has no idea about this crazy stuff they're doing in the bedroom, and that mm -hmm. ends up being the focus of therapy instead of, well, actually, what we're fighting about is X, Y, or Z, and this is a really good part of our lives. <laughs> you know, this is what's working. Mm -hmm. uh, God knows, not that uh, it's always working if you're doing BDSM stuff. There's all kinds of dysfunctional couples that do BDSM. That's uh, not something that other folks have a lock on. Um, but, yeah, you know, I work a lot with folks who have a wide variety of kinks and 
fetishes. I work a lot with BDSM folks. I work a lot with polyamorous folks, another mm-hmm. community where it's quite common for folks who are in non-monogamous relationships to have problems in their relationships, to go seek help with those problems, and to be told that there's something wrong with their relationship because they have other sexual partners. Um, mm-hmm. Again, dispiriting, right, in, in the same way. <laughs> well, that's not really the problem. That's not what we need to work on. You know, we work on this, and we know, thank you, neither of us have a fear of commitment, which is usually the first thing you hear from a couple therapists if you go in and you're not monogamous, is what's up with your fear of commitment? Why can't you just commit to this one person? Um, so another underserved population in the sense that there's a lot of folks who really just have no idea how to deal with it. Well, that gets us back to the people in public life, and they just can't come out and say, well, I'm polyamorous or I'm a kink person and this is the way I am. They have to, like, say, well, if they get caught, I'm I'm diseased, I have a sexual addiction, you know, I can't help it, and they can't just say, this is what I do, so live with it. This is what I do because this is what I like to do. Well, you know, not that there's, I think, a distinction to be made between uh, couples where they have negotiated, yes, we have sex with other people, or one of us has sex with other people, versus couples where somebody's cheating. I think one of those is likelier to be part of a healthy relationship, and one of them is likelier to be part of an unhealthy relationship. Um, But certainly, it's uh, it's very difficult, you know, I think we've had this debate in our society, you know, ever since kind of, I think Bill and Hillary was the big watershed moment. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. You know, did she know? How much did she know? You know, if so, why isn't she divorcing him? You know, and since then, all kinds of other scandals have popped up like this around, well, you know, if you knew that your partner had sex with another person, wouldn't you just divorce them immediately? And if not, what's wrong with you? And what's wrong with your partner for cheating? What's wrong with you for putting up with that? Um, you know, are you either a mercenary? I think Hillary got called a lesbian most of the time. You know, well, of course she doesn't care she's a lesbian. Um, you know, or are you a mercenary who's in it for the power and you don't want to let go of that? Or are you somebody with such low self-esteem that you feel like you don't deserve a monogamous partner? And very rarely does it get acknowledged that, hey, a lot of couples, one partner or both partners, end up doing something outside the relationship, and most of those couples end up staying together. I think the most recent numbers we have is somewhere between 15 and 20% of uh, American couples, one one or more, one of both partners, has had some kind of extramarital sex while they were married. Um, that's a lot of folks. That is a lot of folks. Well, I see that we're uh, out of time. We're actually on recording now. The streaming has ended. But we're still recording, but uh, it's time to close the show. So thank you very much, Adam, for being my guest this evening. Lovely talking to you, Ken, and thank you so much for doing this. It's a great project. It's long overdue, and I'm really happy you're getting your message out. Okay, everyone, stay tuned. Come back next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. We will have Wendy Friesen, who is a hypnotherapist, and Dr. Bruce Alexander, who created the Rat Park Model of Addiction Thank you, everyone, and good night. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.